Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to How Cultural Marxism Threatens the United States and How Americans Can Fight It. Please welcome Sebastian Gorka, host of America First. Morning, everybody. Welcome to our discussion on uh, the internal threat to America from cultural Marxism. My name is Sebastian Gorka, host of America First, a national radio show, former strategist to the President of the United States. I don't think uh, our panelists need any introduction. First, a man who goes by the nom de guerre of Gundi Salvas. Uh, Mike Gonzalez, senior fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, please take your seat. Uh, I've got her bio, hang on, let me just check here. Next up we have uh, my boss, Katie Gawker. If you're not familiar with her work here at Heritage on Civic Society, uh, prior to that she was uh, press Secretary for Customs and Border Protection in the Trump administration and Senior Policy Advisor at the Department for Homeland Security. Katie Gorka, please. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'd like to say a, a hearty welcome to everybody who's watching as well. If you know people who wanted to be part of our discussion today, then don't forget the uh, video will be available after the live streaming at heritage.org. I do believe we have a, a method for getting questions to us online as well. All right, let us begin. So one of the uh, really important aspects of what you two have done today is that this isn't just an analysis of the threat of cultural Marxism. It's a response. It's a strategy. We have lots of mapping out the diagnosis of the problem of the internal threat we face. But let's start with that. How do you defeat something without first adequately defining it? I know you had an internal discussion on what the threat is, next-gen Marxism, uh, Marxism, cultural Marxism, what are the right labels to use? And is Marxism per se an old threat from the Cold War, or is that what we are talking about, Mike? Well, I mean, uh, thanks, uh, Seb. And I, by the way, I had the best of co-authors, and I... Uh, very, She's tough. A very She's tough to work with. Erudite woman who, uh, who's very... The opposite of you. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I... I it is Marxism. <clears throat> it is it is Marxism that has gone through a couple of evolutions, as you as you as you know. And we could get into what those evolutions are, but just just say that it has retained the main elements of Marxism. Uh, but it is Marxism for the for the modern world? Eric Hobsbawm said of Gramsci, Gramsci adopted Marxism for countries that could not have the the Bolshevik Revolution, right. and and the in and, and the people that we have today are heirs of the New Left. And the new left were heirs of, of the Frankfurt School and of Gramsci. So it is that. Uh, I, I think, how do you fight it? I, I we'll, 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 we'll get to the how yeah. you'll fight it. Let's, let's stay at the beginning of the, of the diagnosis. Uh, Katie, is this Marxism? If it is, how much has it changed from the Cold War external threat of Marxism? Well, before answering that, I want to say I think it is 
so important that we identify it, first of all. So, you know, one of the things that we looked at as a model was um, NSC 68, the great document from 1950, drafted primarily by Paul Nitsa, which really provided the strategy for combating the Soviet Union. It's a great document, and one of the very first things he says is, you cannot tackle an en enemy until you name it and understand it. Um, we felt, after all the research that we did, and you know, Mike has been working on this for years, um, that it is Marxism, and it's really important to call it that. Why? Two reasons. One is, they say it about themselves. They self-identify as Marxist, and we provide lots of evidence of that in the paper. For example, the, the co-founders of BLM on that infamous video say we are, quote, well-trained Marxists, correct, Mike? Um, you, wrote, you wrote the book on BLM. Absolutely. I, um, I mean, they were trained not just in Marxism, but in Marxism-Leninism with a, a, a doses of Maoism as well. <clears throat> and it's not, I mean... It, it, let's just take that one. In, 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 in 60 seconds, Patrice Coulers, one of the founders of BLM, was trained by Eric Mann, a, 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 a Marxist from the Weather Underground, a terrorist organization, for those of you who, who were born after 19, uh, 19, 1980. He, he, he wants to destroy the United States. He wants to, he wants to dismantle how we are constituted as, an, as a nation. Ten years before BLM is formed, he recruits Patrice Coulers. His words in his book, which he wrote in 2011 before BLM is founded, he says, I recruited this young woman at the age of 17. I recruited her and I have trained her into Marxism-Leninism. Uh, and his aim is to destroy the United States. And lo and behold, today we have this uh, two years after the, the 2020 riots, which sought to change how we're constituted, our constitution with a big C and a small C, so how could you not see the links to this? Uh, to me, it's very, fairly, it's very obvious, and I think we need to describe it as it is so the country wakes up, and I think the country is waking up. And I yeah. think it's also important to point out that you know, one of the things we did was sort of trace the evolution of these ideas right. from the old left to the new left, to critical legal studies, to critical race theory, to now DEI. Um, at every stage, even though it was shifting and adapting, at every stage they self-identified as Marxists. Now, Mike mentioned Gramsci. Let's let's look at Gramsci for a second, or, or how the the external revolutionary Trotskyite Marxism completely changed to this in, changed to this internal type. So it, it's not just uh, revolution against the system; it's becoming the system. So will you unpack for us, Katie, a little bit the the, the, the D-I-E, the E-S-G, how these ideas have inveigled them in a Gramscian fashion into the system. So whether it's CRT, you've been traveling the country, working with parents groups, pushing back on CRT. This is, this is a far more sophisticated and, and nuanced form of Marxism. This isn't smuggling a, a fellow traveler into a policy, policy shop in, in, in DOD or State Department. This is corporations. This is Disney. This is local school boards. So explain to us this new permutation. Right. Well, the, the really important thing about Gramsci is that they realized after, you know, 
70, 80, 90 years after the Communist Manifesto was written, the great uprising of the proletariat that was supposed to happen really never happened. I mean, yes, you had what happened in Russia, but that was imposed from above by a small band of revolutionaries. So Gramsci kind of- And was of, that industrial country? It was a, a rule. Yes, uh, exactly. Right, right. It was agrarian. Very right. important right. point. So right. the, the two, let's just be clear here. This is why Gramsci is so quintessential to this whole discussion that the realization, his contribution, is that if it's not an agrarian country, right. like Russia under the Tsar, right. if it's not China in 48, it's not going to work. If you have a, a robust middle class with right. Judeo-Christian values, a functioning market, you can't take it over with an armed revolution. This is Gramsci's contribution, and this is how we get eventually to the new left, correct? Right, and it's so important because even, even you know, workers in factories in countries like the United States knew that they had a chance to better their lot. Right. And they didn't want to rise up against that system. They didn't want to see that system taken down. They loved that system. They came to this country for that system. So Gramsci's argument was, okay, the only way we're gonna make this happen is you can't have a frontal assault, let's do it from the sides. And it was called the war of maneuver. And so let's, let's um, insinuate ourselves into the institutions and change the ideas and win that way, and that's what they did. Now, you've done some groundbreaking work on this. Can you just map out this idea of when, when class division doesn't work right. in a robust nation like America, you've got to divide it along different generated identities. Will you explain to us, Mike, what, what you did in mapping out the, the Hispanic little box right. on federal right. forms right. and how this yeah. all fits into it? And that's why that's one of the things that Katie and I call for is getting rid of that in the census and getting, in cleaning out the Census Bureau, getting rid of the National Advisory Committee on Race because it has been taken over by these people, by these activists. But let's, let me just go back very, because people in the audience or with the hundreds of people watching may say, well, why are Gonzalez and the Gorky talking about Gramsci? He died in 1937. He's not translated until 1970. He's translated by the New Left Review. Gramsci, because he- okay, can, I, can I just interrupt you? Does anybody know in here who the greatest writer on Gramsci in America is today? As recognized, no, 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 not this guy. Him. The greatest translator. Nor my intern. You can't. You don't get to talk. The most recognized by the American Socialist Party. Do you know who it is? Who on their page, their web page, after he died, had an in memorial on their page for months? No. Pete Buttigieg's father. There are no exes. The, the the most preeminent left-wing scholar of Gramsci in America is Mayor Pete's father. Just a little uh, little fact. Which is there. really funny, because he, when he talks, he goes, he says, my immigrant father, and you get this sense of this lunch pail guy going to the factory, you know, eating soup that his, his wife has given him. And, and yeah, what's the factory in, in, in South Bend? It's Notre Dame, <laughs> where, where Joe Buttigieg was the head of the Gramsci Committee and, and was the, the best translator. Yeah. His translations are beautiful. I quote Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, Joe Buttigieg all the time. So, so yes, the, the, the new left is completely the child that they translate Gramsci. It's enamored by Gramsci. By the way, this is a, a very good division for you. You can, you can talk about the period be between 1917 and 1926 as the Leninist stage. You can talk about 26 to 53 as the Stalinist stage, and then between 53 and 78 as the Maoist stage. Since that point, we have been living in the Gramscian stage. Since 78. Yes, since yeah. 78, because Gramsci is super important to all of this. 
because because of the influence. You know, I wrote a book called The Plot to Change America. People say, well, come on, your book, you know, there's no plot. It's like, well, there's no plot in the sense that people don't go into basements in Cambridge, Massachusetts or Berkeley, California and, and hash out a plot and have secret meetings. But it is, they, all, they, are, they are all reading the same thing. So th th this is very important. So th this idea, it's very easy to poo-poo those who say, well, there's you know, Marxism, there's an overarching right. plot, right. and Soros is sitting in a smoke-filled room somewhere planning this with <laughs> you know, um, Bill Gates. No, this is a, a collective hive mind. If you're reading the same material, if you believe America is the problem, whether you're Howard Zinn, whether you're right. Buddha you, you have a collective approach, a cultural approach to America. Now, before we get to the strategy, and we, this is the whole point of the paper, so please help yourself to the paper, or send the links around. Before we get to what we do about it, I'd like you to just talk a little about how this got into government. So we, we skipped over this, but the fact that when you're filling out a federal form, if you're, if you're buying a gun in Virginia, okay, you're doing a background check, you have to tick the box. Are you Hispanic or non-Hispanic? That is the first question. The first question is, are you Hispanic or non-Hispanic? How the hell did that happen, Mike? So that, and what's behind that? So that's one, that's 75% that's of the answer as to how this got into government. Very quickly, the activists, activists who had read all the stuff in the 1970s started putting pressure on the bureaucracy and say, saying to it, look, we need a group. The bureaucracy, actually, the Census Bureau fought back and there was a, a very good exchange on this in which the head of the Census Bureau said, we have everything you need. We have all the data. We ask what language do you speak at home. We ask where were you born. We ask where was your father born. We, we have all this data. And the activist said back, we don't need the data. We need the group. We need the group because you need to have a victim group. And, and then Angela Harris, uh, a, a critical race theory uh, architect, and there are many people in the audience who know CRT really well. Delano Squires is here. You know, Angela Harris writes an essay in which it says, not only do we need to create the group, but we need to infuse it with mythology. We need to, you know, we need to add... A narrative. Yeah, we need a narrative that, is, that, is, that we need to come up with. And, and it's not just her. Like, you know, Christina Mora, a, a, a key professor in Berkeley, said that, you know, don't worry, within a few decades we're going to have uh, a mass amnesia. People are going to forget that Hispanics did not exist in, in, in the early 70s. I have a small anecdote about this. As a, as a kid in Queens and New York City, I remember my uncle coming in through the door. He was, a, he was a, a Nixon Republican. And he said to me in Spanish, we're going to be Hispanics now. He said to me in Spanish. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, they're going to call us Hispanics. This is mid-70s. I'm like, well, was that because grandfather was born in Spain? He said, no, it's a, new, it's a new term that the bureaucracy has come up with for us. And, and we, we were... Uh, was he happy or unhappy when he was labeled a Hispanic? He, he was never labeled. He never labeled himself a Hispanic. He was, he was very much, he was the only guy in New York City who wore cowboy boots and we, we listened to country music. <laughs> <laughs> the only household in Queens in Jackson Heights to listen to country music. He was a complete American. Uh, but we were Cubans on our way to being Americans. Americans. And we did not need a way station to be parked in. But enough with the personal anecdotes. The only, the, the other answer, how does this get into government? is that the, we have a, what, what do we know about the, 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 uh, the baby boom? Is that it's a boom. It produced a lot of people who could not all be employed. All these people going to college all of a sudden in, in the 1960s, they could not be all employed uh, by, by private industry. The smart ones were, but the people who had an ax to grind 
went into, this has been documented. They went into government and they went into, the, into college. Yeah. And they had it, they hated the system. They had, the worst thing you can do to a generation is not, not give it what they think they deserve. Yeah. And we had this group, a lot of them went to university, were teachers, but a lot of them went into the bureaucracy. And, and uh, the baby boomers, because there was a lot of them. Right, Katie, the, the whole point of the paper is what do we do about it? We are still trying to work out who won the election, so the, uh, the timing is, is rather good. What is the response to cultural Marxism in America? Is this something federal government can fix? Where is it fixed? What are the kinds of things you've recommended at the end of your paper? All right, so we have a whole litany of things, and I'll, you know, Mike and I together can tackle this, but I'll say two things right up front. I think, first and foremost, after we've identified the threat and started to understand better the threat, it's going to happen locally. And you mean the fixing of it? The fixing of it, yeah. The, I mean, we all know this. Right. The answers are not coming from Washington for just about anything right now, right? Um, and I think it is happening locally. I mean, we are seeing an absolutely extraordinary movement of parents, as we've often talked about. Um, and it's because they're understanding it. Because what's happening is they're seeing what this translates into at the level of elementary school and what this is doing to their children, not to mention the parents who send their kids off to college only to have them come back hating America and maybe hating their parents, right? So the local is very important. But as Mike and I discuss in the paper, there is absolutely a role for leadership. Um, you know, what, what Trump did in laying down a marker um, by forbidding like CRT training in government was super important. Look what Ron DeSantis has been doing in Florida, extraordinarily important. So there is a role both at the national and the senior leadership state level. So I, I, I'm really optimistic. Um, I know that the election, you know, didn't give us the results that we wanted, but it brought, has brought some great people into office. I think it has emboldened people. Um, so I hope we're going to see some, some, some of our leaders really standing up more forcefully and fighting this and speaking out against it. I think the election has shown us the way to the future because it is the candidates who were very active in this sphere. Where, and, and by the way, a lot of, uh, a lot of school boards flipped. Yeah. This is a, a, a story that has not been told. Yeah. But you know, you're talking about it, it, the genesis of this paper is that I started traveling at the end of 2020. I visited 30 cities in 2021. I'm visiting a lot. This week is crazy what I'm doing. I'm going to Ohio, Detroit, New York, this week alone. And I, I, when I, got, I talked to people about the, the, the 2020 riots, how Marxism inspired all of this was, and, and the whole genesis of this. And then people started asking questions. They said, well, do you have a, a grand strategy for this, right? And, and the, the, answer, the truth was that I didn't. You said you're going to ask Katie. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back and I told Katie, and Katie said, well, we need to come up with it. We need to, to write a paper. So for the first time in my life, I've, I've always hated, you know, I've, I've, I've only written solutions chapters when the, when the publisher has held a gun to my temple. Uh, but, but this time, it starts with solutions because Katie and I talked about it, said we need solutions. And, and there were, there's a lot of great solutions coming back from, from the states, uh, to, to, to name one, uh, uh, Wesley Moore, Riley Moore, the, the state treasurer of West Virginia has done wonderful stuff against ESG. Uh, we have a lot of stuff on Ron DeSantis, what he's done against the colleges, what he did with Disney. So, so, and a lot of the ideas are from Katie and me, myself, but we really stretched out a very large net to try to get the best things that were happening out in the country. 
Before we go to questions, one last thing that, that may surprise some uh, in the paper. You mentioned the sexualization of children, that we've got to stop that. How does that fit into what cultural Marxists are doing here in America, Katie? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, er eradicating the nuclear family is the primary goal of Marxism. Which used to be on the website of the BLM, correct? Yeah, until uh, until we wrote about it and then they took it down because as, as good Stalin as they believe in, you know, Deleting history. Deleting history. Right. And also the idea that there is no, there is no truth, there is no observable truth, um, so we can, we can play around with, quote, gender. Um, but I think more than anything, I really think the whole transgender thing and what's happening in the schools is really about driving a wedge between parents and children. And I just thought it was brilliant for those of you who follow the Moms for Liberty on social media. Uh, they had a great rejoinder to the NEA, the National uh, Educators Association, I think it's the second largest uh, teachers union, actually had the audacity to post, uh, teachers know what's best for children. Right. Couldn't believe it, but that's their thinking. That's one of the key features of Marxism that they retain today. That's in the manifesto. Yeah. When, when Marx and Engels called for, for uh, universal education and for taking the children from their parents. And this is, this is uh, Alexander Kollontai, the first cultural minister of the Soviet Union, was a big believer of these things. You know, the parental rights are zero. They don't have any rights. Uh, it, but look, you talked about the, the sexualization of children. David Horowitz, whom I, I'm sure you both know about, a great former Marxist, used to always say, the issue is never the issue. The issue is a revolution. In uh, in Eric Mann himself, in an interview, very revealing interview, which he gave to Venezuela's Telesur in 2015, he said, you know, whether it's sex or race or climate, this is really just a little division of labor that we Marxists have. What we want to do is destroy society. And and, and so when, when Greta Thunberg came out last week and revealed herself as an anti-capitalist yeah. and said, what I want to do is, is, is destroy capitalism because yeah. capitalism is, at, is, is the, the source of all badness. I was like, not in the least surprised. You know, the founder of Greenpeace walked away. We have it in our paper. He walked away after 89. is a key year. We haven't talked about this. But after 89, he said, everybody who was pro-Soviet all of a sudden became an environmentalist became a, a climate extremist because that was a way to destroy capitalism. This is the founder of Greenpeace. So this is just wh whether it's race, sex, or, 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 or climate, but the sex thing is, is immediate. This, the, the, you can really, and, 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 and George Lukacs in Hungary, I don't have to tell you about Hungary or George Lukacs in, in 1919, he understood that by teaching sexual depravity to children, you destroy the family, if you destroy the family, you destroy society, if you destroy society, you destroy the country, which is always the big goal of any Marxist. Yeah. And right. I, I want to add yes. also one thing, because it's, it's um, on another line of research that Mike and I have been working on, which is what is the role of philanthropies right. in supporting all this and radicalizing this? Uh, we don't bring it in too much into this paper, but it will be in the book, and it'll be in a subsequent paper that we're publishing. But you know, I don't think um, most Americans understand what a formidable foe we have in our major philanthropies. And, they, and the scale, we're talking about the, billions. The incredible, the amount of money that they're spending, the degree to which they're working together and coordinating, and the way they are throwing money into this. They have gone whole hog into DEI. And I just would say one last thing, because I don't think we've sufficiently made this point. Um, it's, we're not just against this because it's Marxism. I mean, I am. 
Okay. Um, but we're against this because it fails. It does right. not achieve the things it says it's trying to achieve. Look, we've been, you know, we've had the war on poverty since the 1960s, all kinds of, you know, federal programs. And now we're, we're going deeper and deeper down that trail. And it has proven to fail. Not only does it fail, it actually, I think, causes the very opposite of what it wants to what it wants to do. It has broken down the African American family. It's broken down the white family. It's breaking down the family in America. I think there is no greater tragedy for this country than that. You know, Saul Alinsky, in his foreword to Rules for Radicals, dedicates his book to Lucifer. Lucifer, the first revolution. The first revolutionary, because he says this is great. He he revolts. He's the first revolutionary, but what did Lucifer make? He made hell, <laughs> and this is what Marxists do. They, but they don't care about that part. Solinsky did not care about the fact that Lucifer, after his revolution, created literally hell. Yeah. <laughs> this is where Marxis, Marxism always ends up. They just want power. Right. All right, we, I think we have some uh, staff with microphones. I'm going to abuse the prerogative. I've got one question I'm going to play. I, uh, identity politics with you, Michael. Uh, I keep getting told that Hispanic Americans are culturally conservative. They just don't know that they're Republicans. Is this true? That's the Reagan line. So there's, there's several, it's, time is running. Yeah, this is an hour long answer. Um, <laughs> I, are they, I, just tell me, are they no, conservatives, cultural? No, I, I mean, when they look at transgender insanity. Let's just, say, let's just say that the elections were very good for Republicans in terms of Hispanic vote, okay. which was fully expected. But it has more to do with the fact that because of the Marxism of it, the conservative message is aspirational. They treat them as, as immigrants who, after all, came to this country to succeed. Uh, the left treats them as victims because they need to have grievances. Because if you fill the group, members of a group with grievances, then they, they will overthrow the system. But I tell you, if you know human nature, nobody gets up in Montevideo or, or Cuba or, or Monterey, Mexico one day and says, I want to take my family to the US so they can become victims. Right. Uh, it's just not the way it works. You want it to be a victor. So it's the aspirational message, I think, that has worked. And it, it, it was predicted. Uh, by me and others, and it panned out this election, 10 percentage points better than 2018. So there is, but, but it's not the cultural part. And, and I, I, the aspirational. I think it's the aspirational versus victimhood. Excellent. All right, questions, please. Uh, we have over there and in the front. Oh, oh no, let's go with uh, Mr. Squires. I didn't see him there. Mr. Yes. Squires. Um, I, I hear a lot from Marxists who say they want to, uh, particularly in the public safety space, they want to reimagine public safety. Um, are there any writers or thinkers, contemporary writers or thinkers, who have put some meat on, the, on those bones to say, this is what I think society should look like after we have fully implemented the Marxist revolution? Who, who would you say are maybe the top two people who have actually um, sketched out what society should look like? Well, so, Marx didn't even do it. I mean, that's the no, irony. Right. Well, Marx was right. Marx never gave. Never did it. But, however, we do have a couple of, and I do take them seriously. One is Angela Davis, the other one is Patrice Cullors, and they're abolitionists. Not abolitionists in the sense of Frederick Douglass. They're abolitionists in the fact that they want to abolish not just the police, but also uh, the court system. So they're anarchists? No, I wouldn't say that. They, they have an idea in mind that they call restorative justice, which they try, they're trying out in schools right now, which is to say, there really isn't a victim, there really isn't a criminal. We need to have the, bring the two groups, the two agreed groups together, have them talk it out. Uh, that doesn't work. 
that is crazy that has led to 2020, so a 30% rise in the homicide rate, which has continued unabated. It was not 30% in 2021, but it did build on that 30% rise. That, by the way, that was the largest spike in homicides in U.S. history. The, the, the second largest is 1968, which was another year of political turmoil. Right. So yes, restorative justice would be the answer to it. It's kind of, it's a very, it's not a very cohesive answer, but that's the answer to it. I consider Angela Davis a thinker. I think Patrice Cullors is also somebody who has devoted some thoughts to it. They're in that space. I think the, 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 it's, it's chaos that would happen if we got rid of prisons and the court system and police. Uh, and maybe that's what they want because they want to destroy the system. Sorry, anybody you want to add to that? No, that was great. Okay, I have a question in the front, yes. then we'll go back here. A uh, microphone, I saw, please. I saw the revolution. I <laughs> know uh, oh, you need to need you need to use the microphone. I saw the revolution. Right. Uh, in fact, too close. My mother's cousin was the vice premier, Rafael Rodriguez, probably the leading intellectual, head of the Marxist Party at 21, a genius. But he was an orphan. My grandmother had to adopt because his parents died, and he had. But oh, do you have a question? Yes. Yeah, yeah the, question, the, the question is, when I went to Cuba, <clears throat> the Cubans said, why did you leave us? I said, because you, you didn't want us here. We left. He said, well, can you come back? I said, no, we don't, we're not coming back. It's over. So basically, it doesn't work at all. And all these people like Castro are billionaires. So they're just after power. That's, that's my question. And you have to say it on the news like Gorka. It's after power. They have no ideals. They're evil. They're they, evil they, people. It doesn't work. And they're after power. Well, and they're look, super capitalists. It's all, it's all about power. In fact, if you... It's power and mansions. Remember, Patrice Colores has four mansions. Right, okay? but if you... That, that's power to the but people. But Alicia Garza, when she, when she writes about this, she talks about power, raw power. She said, power is who gets to make decisions, yeah. who gets to... I mean, she... The, so, so the beautiful thing about the U.S. Constitution, which Katie wrote about in our, in our paper, is that it's, it's, it's a constitution that limits power. We're about limiting power. They're about enhancing power and grabbing power and using power to the max. Yeah, no, I, I, I just have to concur. I mean, we've been, we've been talking about this whole issue of power a lot. In fact, one of the things that I was reading this morning on the philanthropy piece is this is one of the problems with these massive philanthropies where uh, corporations have, have stakeholders, have customers, have shareholders who put a block on their power, who put a, you know, a limits on their power. In the U.S. government, we have the American people who put a limit on their power. Philanthropies have basically unlimited power with these huge piles of money. No. It's just one example. Over there, we have a question. The gentleman in the blue tie. Yes, thank you. So what can we do about the universities? Because as it stands right now, they are the source, the source of the poison. Yeah. Katie? Yeah, so 100% 100% agree. Um, I think they really almost have to be the, the number one priority. So there's a whole slew of things that, that we propose that people do uh, with regard to universities. I don't know if we actually said this. I think the first one is stop sending your kids. Um, I don't know if we actually came out and said that. We need to. But uh, two that we did concretely come out and say, um, and this gets a little bit wonky, but it's, it's very important to understand this. So one of the ways this is getting funded is because of the whole system that we have of funding research at universities. So I don't know if people realize this. I remember one of my first days uh, when I went into DHS, into the Office of Policy, and we were looking at uh, grants that we were going to be giving to universities. And keep in mind, I had come out of the nonprofit world where when you apply for a grant, you, you try to keep your overhead costs as low as you possibly can. 
when universities apply to the US government for grants, and this is, we're, we're talking billions of dollars that the government feeds to universities for grants and research, um, they get a 50% overhead. No, not even in Europe do they give those kinds of overheads. And the argument is that these, this level of overhead is what's funding a lot of these DEI positions. And just as a reminder, our ex exceptional colleague here at Heritage, Jay Green, wrote a really brilliant right. paper on DEI right. in universities. He looked at 65 of the largest universities and how many DEI staff they have, and the average was 43. And the high was Michigan with a Yes, Michigan. University of Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, this is a big. I think 113 one. DEI officers. I think. It was. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to look at this. Um, you know, ultimately, do keep in mind, parents and children are the customers that are being served. So, I think they have a lot to do with regard to universities. Um, and then we had one more on universities, which is, and this is a this is a tougher one, but I think it's this is something that we need to be discussing nationally. Is um, let's not make the university degree a requirement for jobs anymore. And I think we are absolutely moving in that direction, but concretely that is one of the things that we proposed. So I went back and looked at our paper, they, because Katie and I have been working all year, and I just used to get in the phone, when are you going to pull the trigger on this? Can you finish this bloody paper, please? So, so, so we had like 45,000 words, and I talked to the editors here and said, nah. Yeah, we're not going to publish 45,000 words. So this is why she, she mentioned the book. So a lot of this is in the stuff that we already have, but it's not in the paper. But one of the things that we did have, we had uh, something on DeSantis and this, the wonderful stuff he's done with tenure, biodiversity, and accreditation. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think he was rewarded for doing all these things, by the way, he, moving against tenure, saying, you know, this is not going to be automatic. And, and moving against, the, 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 this is another hallmark of heritage research, is changing the accreditation of universities. And in the view diversity, demanding if you take the government's money, you're not gonna have 99% of professors who are of one view. You know, you need to have view diversity. So I think that this is something that will be, if we have a book, which we hope we do, we already have it written, but it's, we have, there's very little of it in the paper as opposed to what we already have. Yeah, just uh, I'd just also point anybody to what Charlie Kirk has done in the last two years. He said, uh, basically, don't give your money to your colleges. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, don't give them a brass farthing. Don't give them a red nickel if they've got 48 you know, assistant deans of diversity and send them a letter and tell them why you're not funding them. Uh, one last thing that I think was fascinating for me, I think it was his fourth day in the job. The new president uh, of Heritage, Kevin Roberts, came on my show. And uh, I interviewed him for half an hour, and I had a certain lady smuggle me a question in to ask him. And Katie said, ask him about education. What should we do about education? Uh, because he's Professor Roberts. He's a, I think, fifth or sixth generation educator, ran a college. He's a historian. So just before we finished live on air in front of three million people, I said, uh, President Roberts, what should we do about education in, in colleges? Because it's exciting that the school boards are being taken over and we're getting K through 12 normalized. Can we do anything about higher ed? Response, no, burn it down. <laughs> Start from scratch. He literally said it is unsalvageable. You know, with the exception of you know, Hillsdale and even Grove City's gone uh, woke. There, there are very few places to support. Everywhere else, pull out your money. And I'd, I'd, I'd recommend one last thing. They lose their tax-free status. If you're a political entity, 
why the hell do you have a $40 billion endowment that's not taxed? If you want to be an indoctrination mill, tax Harvard, tax Stanford. They may hire conservative professors if we do that. And speaking of which, did anybody see the election results coming out of Arizona State University? This was a post on yeah. social media. What yeah. was the percentage? 96% voted for the Democrat governor, 4% voted for Carrie Lake. And that's the, the largest. students. Of the students. Right. And that's the largest university in the country, right? Yeah. yeah. Gentleman over here. Uh, as America can fight it, it's J.P. Hogan. Um, it seems we have to go to 1941. Someone was raising the wall of separation decision for separation of church and state. That seems to allow Marxism in the U.S. because it gives equal standing to secular socialism right. and under right from God. Right. Well, that this wall of separation obviously is something that Jefferson writes about later, much later. They, there's nothing about it in the Constitution. No, nothing. Uh, he's 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 caught in a fight. I think it was with the Congregationalists in, in New England, and he he talked. I think it was in 1820 mm -hmm. that he writes about this: the separation of church and state. Uh, but this really, it, it, it's an anti-establishment clause that we have. No no church. The federal government cannot have an established church. Virginia and and, and Massachusetts did have it. So I agree with you. That is. I don't know if we can offer a policy solution to that, but obviously I, I am completely in agreement with you. Well, yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's funny because I was actually thinking about this this morning because we, again, this is not something that we articulate because we were really focused on policy solutions. But I, I think both of us believe that the only way we're actually going to get out of this is through a revival of faith, a strengthening of faith. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it underlies everything. But that's a it's a hard that's a hard one for us. Like I, I think we leave that to the to the priests it's, and the it preachers. It is a hard one no? for us. I know I, I I didn't have time to prepare fully for this, and I I, I still went to mass this morning because I, I need to have God on my side for this uh, this event today <laughs> more than I need to prepare for. Right. We have a question over here. Yes, in the back. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, following on the uh, university question, um, specifically, let's talk about an institution, or three institutions rather, that have the American people as their customers. Uh, the service academies are not immune to cultural Marxism, and how do we stop this and return it, return these institutions back to becoming the premier producers of combat leaders in the world? Um, oh, I don't want to know. Give it to yeah, I'll talk about the service I, academies. No, can we I? kick it to yeah, him? Yeah, go ahead. I, since, since I spent many years teaching at them. Um, you're absolutely right. How is it that the Air Force Academy 10 years ago had a state-funded Wiccan temple built for its students, a Wiccan pagan temple? How is it that on graduation day at West Point, the most prodigious, prestigious military academy in the world, one of the students in dress blues opens his shirt to show a t-shirt of Che Guevara, then holds his cover to the camera and inside the hat it has a note, communism always wins. That's at West Point. Now that man who has since left the army is now a professor, a tenured professor at a liberal arts of college. Of course. Of course he is. <laughs> so um, how do you change it is the question. I'll quote a regular guest on my show, Colonel Kurt Schlichter, he's a bit of an academic bomb thrower. Um, he's a you know, career soldier, now he's a, an author. He says, units? perform to that which the commander measures. If you're measuring wokeness, right, Millie, right, 
if, if the chairman of the Joint Chiefs says, we want woke institutions, everybody beneath him is measured by whether they perform wokeness. If your metric is anti-wokeness and excellence and combat effectiveness, then you will be judged from second lieutenant up to three star on combat effectiveness. So uh, with any institution, it's just leadership. But the leadership, uh, you have to get rid of most generals in the US military because I've seen it for 10 years. They are political animals. Anybody above 05, 06 has been bought into this Petraeus political animal cliche. And that's how we get Millie saying in front of Congress, I don't know what CRT is, but it's good. And we should study it because I'm white. And white rage is real. Yeah, and I think the congressional oversight yeah. has a big role totally. to play in this. Totally. When we hope that, that we can see some of it now. But, but what about the role of the commander in chief as well? Oh, I, don't you think I mean, it ultimately it's, comes It starts with the commander in chief, and right. it starts with who he puts in uh, in his chief command. And, right. then, and then people have to be fired. I mean, we, we haven't had generals fired or retire or, or, or resign on matters of principles for 40 years. How, how is that? How is that after Afghanistan? How do we not have people resign or be fired as a matter of principle? Question. Go ahead. Uh, so thank you so much. Huge fan of all three of you. Uh, so you talked a little bit about the, uh, the, the uh, infiltration of the academy and the, the bureaucracy, the government bureaucracy, uh, especially after the 60s and the baby boomers not finding the jobs they were looking for. We're like on our third or fourth recession in the last 20 years. So are you seeing that there's like a huge kind of uh, a receptiveness to these ideas besides what we would already sort of expect from all the indoctrination camps? And having gone to a school for, for bureaucrats, I can speak to the fact that it's, it's replete with all of this stuff. So I'm kind of wondering, how do you cope with it in conversation when you're talking to someone who might actually have legitimate kind of uncertainty economically in their future and they're falling for it because it's promising them things so do, let me how, how do you deal with a young generation <clears throat> that doesn't have economic prospect and finds this stuff sexy yeah you know i i don't know about the young generation because I, I haven't really studied and i saw that they voted a certain way in this last election i think the reason why katie and i travel so much and you, he travels as well and we talk to each other from airports is that there is a huge demand in the country to hear from us you know, I don't generate my own speaking engagements. People call me, the same with you, and we travel the country because people want to hear about all this, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, but, but I still think you're getting at a really important question, and I think this is one of the areas where um, I think our side has to do a better job, and I don't think we're doing a good, good, good enough job of this right now, of explaining why those policies fail. You know, when I think about I my, my, my dream is always to have something like... Um, we need a new uh, Hayek, uh, The Road to Serfdom, and the fact that it was serialized <coughs> in the Reader's Digest. Right. You know, it, it really, right. this is not something that you intuitively grasp. I mean, intuitively, Marxism sounds like a good thing, or socialism sounds like a good thing, but it's history that has shown us it never, ever works. And, and th th this is the problem with the left, is they go with what feels good, what sounds good, and they don't go with the, the, the science, the history, what, what we know to be true. And I just, I think that we haven't done enough to make the case that these programs have not worked. And I, I hope, Delano in particular, I always, this is what I want to talk to you about, um, I, I think that we haven't done a good enough job of explaining why the war on poverty ended up being a war on the family. 
Right, do we have uh, internet questions coming in? Go ahead. So why hasn't the United States Congress had hearings on the BLM riots, given that the leaders are self-proclaimed Marxists and a direct threat to individuals, families, and the governments of our country? Excellent. Let's ask the guy who wrote a book on we, BLM. We call for that in the paper. We call for exactly that in the paper. I think that, I think that uh, uh, Melina Abdullah, Patrice Coulers, Alicia Garza, and Nopal Tometi have to be put under oath. Um, they have to be asked why they unleashed what they unleashed. It's perfectly fine. And, you know, we're not fighting the Soviet Union anymore. We're, we're, we're confronting people who are Americans with constitutional rights. It's perfectly fine to be a communist. You just have to be, I don't think so, but I think it's, but it's, it's constitutionally allowed to be a communist. We just want, I think the country should know whether you have unleashed this level of violence and have had these riots because you believe in these ideas. And I can, think can, I, can I push against um, you, Mike, for a second? This is a really important question. We, we had hours of discussion, my wife and I, because this is, this is the crux of the matter. This is the real challenge. The co I miss the Cold War. I, I grew <laughs> up in the Cold War. The Cold War was easy. Count how many nukes they have. Count how many nukes we have. We better have better nukes and more nukes. And our early warning may be better. I mean, it was really that simple. Right? You're measuring power that was easily measurable, and the enemy you could point at was over there in Cuba, in Russia, in North Korea. Now we have the enemy inside the wire, right. and we have a US constitution. And we have people, and I'm sorry, it's not okay to be a communist in America if you're a real communist, because if you're Alexandra Vindman in the White House, and you are leaking the president's classified phone conversations to undermine him as a serving lieutenant colonel. You are a seditionist, and you have committed a crime. So this, this is the real challenge we face as a nation. How do you deal with Americans who actually hate America and are taking actions that are against the US Constitution? Because you, if you're a real communist who actually is subverting the nation is not actually allowed in America. You're not allowed to subvert. You're not allowed to be a conspiring individual inside government saying, the president, can I, I'm gonna go rant here for a second. Mark Milley, in an interview for a book that was just released, said, I wrote a letter of resignation to President Trump, but I didn't give it to him so I could stay inside the building to protect America from the president. Can we just stop there for a second? Nobody elected that fat git, okay? 64 million people elected President Trump as the commander in chief. And the most senior military officer said, I'm going to protect America from the man who was elected. This is why this paper is so crucial because the challenge has so utterly transmogrified from an external kinetic military one to an internal political one. And these people have rights, but they're undermining the Constitution with those rights. What, I'm, what I'm saying, Seb, is that it's legal and perfectly fine to believe in central planning. Sure. It's legal and perfectly well, the fine. The actions you take. It's to key. believe that, the, that the, 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 the schools really should have power and par par parents have no parental rights. It is legal to believe to that, that and say that. Yeah. It is legal to believe, what are the other, that, uh, that God has to be abolished. It is legal to believe that, this, that the nation state should be abolished. You know, you can express these ideas. 
these are the, the and they have the constitutional right to say that. But we should be very aware that they believe these things. Uh, and in fact, the more aware that we are, the better, because I think that the American people just are not going to sign up for this program. So, so as, as soon as they come out and say, yeah, actually, these are the things we believe, the, and not just when they're speaking to each other, but, uh, but speaking to all Americans. And that's what I say it is, is that we're facing a different challenge than we faced with the Soviet Union. Oh, yes. Because, because Brezhnev did not have constitutional rights. Uh, into that question? Uh, Go ahead. I, have, I have another question. Um, the Marxists have a deceiving message of standing up against oppression in the name of social justice. How do we fight that message? How do we fight the social justice message? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to what I said earlier. I think we have to make the case in showing how it doesn't achieve. Their, their programs, their policies don't achieve what they say they're setting out to achieve. I think it's as simple as that. I think they dissimulate. Actually, they hide the truth. They don't say what they really believe in. I think this is, this is part of the problem, is that they, although they have hints, and critical race theory and critical theory are filled with hints, for example, calling the, the textbook of critical race theory the big red book, in an allusion to Mao's little red book, or talking about the long march to the institutions, another allusion to Maoism and the, the long march in China yeah. in the 1930s. All their inside jokes are about how Marxist they are. So I think that they understand, uh, and, and we could go on about this for a very long time. There are many instances of this. I think that they're, they're much less than, 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 than candid about what their goals and their, their, their plans are. Well, and, and I think where they are candid, I mean, for example, talking about, um, you know, like uh, with the 1619 yeah, project or, right. you know, sometimes, you know, I think some of them are, are very open about right. it's time, it's their time. And that means time for reverse discrimination. But then they took down the video where Patrice Guler said we train Marxists. Yeah. That has now disappeared. Right. And they removed from the website where they said we well, want to destroy a nuclear family. A nuclear family that has now disappeared. So once you point that out, they, they go, oh, no, 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 take that out. All right. I think I have time for one more question in the front there, please. Thank you. How would you compare the threat of cultural Marxism in the United States with uh, the threat in other democracies in other parts of the world, starting with Europe? First of all, I want to say that this man is, was one of the longest serving heads of BOA, David Jackson, in, 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 a real good American. Um, I don't know how you, I think that when I traveled to Spain, for example, and they asked me to speak on critical race theory, I said, well, you don't have races here. You know, but they do. so what they use there is, is gender theory. They 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 go gone all in on on they they are they're ahead of us, like behind us. I mean they they're worse than us on the gender stuff because why? Because they don't have they don't have races, but they do have two sexes, and that's their way. Remember I talked about er, earlier about little division of labor they have. What do they use in Latin America? When I travel to Latin America, they use indigenism. You know, they don't be, be, because that's the way to destroy society from within. And that's exactly what we have seen in this Marxist wave, this rise of indigenism. No, I think that's, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, all right, Delano, round two, last question. <laughs> <laughs> um, g given, you know, the amount of money that BLM raised in, in 2020 and the sources, particularly, you know, Fortune 500 companies and, and how so many of them have glommed on to this movement, I would make the argument that the revolution has been corporatized. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear you all talk about 
the role that these large companies play in advancing cultural Marxism. Um, I'd like to know whether they know that they're being used and what, if anything, can be done to sort of uh, counteract their influence on this particular movement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, um, they all serve customers. So ultimately, it's going to have to be the customers that I think speak out and put pressure. But I think you also have to really acknowledge a lot of them are driven by fear. A lot of them are really just trying to protect themselves against uh, lawsuits. Right. But at the same time, I will also say many of them have really, you know, because they've gone to our colleges, they have been educated as good socialists this and they have bought, yeah. yeah, they've bought into um, the, 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 the thinking. And, and I think, again, it's just more than anything, it's going to be we have to get better and do better at making the case. And on that note, I just want to say, I think one of the areas where, again, we as conservatives have really fallen short, and maybe even the most important way, most important way in which we have fallen short is we are not in the culture. Yeah. We are not making movies. We are not writing right. novels. And, you know, uh, there's a, a great case made on, um, there's a, a terrific podcast called Red Pilled America where they talk a lot about what's going on in Hollywood from a, from a conservative perspective. Um, we are not doing things like funding long-form journalism. Long-form journalism is a really important source of stories for films and, and for it. television. And the, the left, left funds, funds it, and we do not. And I think, you know, honestly, this is ultimately going to be one in the culture. We but, no, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say that, you know, it's, we always all go back to the Breitbart, you know, politics is downstream of culture. But I, I really believe that we are only going to win this if we can win it in the culture. And that part of that is going to mean actually funding the culture. But, you know, Delano, there is a policy response to this. And we have seen it in West Virginia with the restrictive financial institutions list by state treasurer Riley Moore. We saw it in Florida, where Ron DeSantis went against Disney and took down a, a state privilege, a privilege that the state had granted it. Yeah. So as conservatives, we always have, we're always allergic to, to political leaders getting involved in the private sector. However, we have to think, rethink this in the sense that a lot of these private corporations or public, you know, joint stock corporations are really quasi government entities mm -hmm. because of the, the level of regulation, the, the fact that they, 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 they think they're, they're acting to stakeholders. They are, and we need to treat them as such. And so I think, especially when the answer, as we saw in Florida with the Disney case, is to take away a government-granted privilege that one would argue should never have been granted in the first place. So there are policy responses to this. I think they, they restrict the financial institutions list and it's not just West Virginia now, it's like 20 states, right? I think that have followed West Virginia's example. So I think that is a very good, especially for shops like ours that, it, that, 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 that talk about policy, produce policy, recommend policy. This is a rich environment for us. Uh, if I may just add one thing, Delano, uh, this whole thing on culture that, that Breitbart so helped us with, <coughs> we've got to be careful. It's, uh, we did nothing in the culture for about 60 years. But it's not our job to make conservative content. Daily Wire's model, as far as I'm concerned, is wrong. I, I mean, I, I like watching Daily Wire, but you're not going to change the culture by saying, hey, I'm a conservative movie maker. Watch my movies. No. What was the point of Hollywood? It was good movies 
that had American cultures. That's the difference. So the reason my wife left Heritage is we have now a production company. We're making our first TV show. It's not going to be a conservative TV show. It's going to be a rollicking good TV show <laughs> that talks about excellence, meritocracy, cool American things. This is what conservatives have to understand, that it's telling stories that's important. The left tells stories and then smuggles their crap in underneath it, right? We have to tell better stories that are about excellence, meritocracy, the American dream. Uh, very few conservatives get that distinction. We don't need another 10 movies on God is good and read the Bible, okay? No, we have to be a little bit more subtle than that. But, but Hollywood was used in World War II totally. to gel the nation, and not only that. But with good stories. Right, and, but to tell the story of how the Ellis Island immigration you know, jump had gelled into a nation. So you had, in World War II, all these movies that always included an Italian from Brooklyn, a, a Mexican from Texas, right. you know, a, a, and, and they were all like good Americans fighting together, you know, 40 years after, the, after Ellis Island. This did a lot yeah. to, win, to win the war. Uh, so I, I, I do think that, by the way, this is another theory that Katie and I developed in writing this. Uh, who was it, Pat Horowitz? Norman Podhoretz wrote in the late 90s, we're all Gramscians now. We understand the culture. And then conservatives forgot the culture. Right. And I think what may have happened was 9-11. We all, all, all the, the, the best minds turned their attention to fighting the, 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 the Islamofascist threat coming from 9-11, right. and we forgot the culture. But now I think conservatives are getting it. The culture really, you know how James Carville said, is the economy stupid? I think this election showed it's the culture stupid. Right. You know, yeah. we, we are all Gramscians now again. And I'll just offer a teaser. So one of, the, one of the really great points that actually Mike discovered that's in the paper, you have to read it if you want to learn more about this, there was a, an amazing article that the New York Times published in 1989, just when we thought, you know, history was over uh, and everything had been won. Actually, the, the New York Times published an article that said, well, the Marxists have kind of taken over the universities. The New um, York Times. Yeah, New York Times. So... But read the paper and so I think learn my, more. My ex intern Daniel just nodding his head because I think he may have found it uh, years ago. <laughs> all right, kudos to you. It's, right. it's fascinating. Yeah. Our time is up. Make sure you follow both of our speakers today. Gundi Salvas is his nom de guerre on Twitter. Gundi Salvas, Gorka Katie on Twitter, and I believe the paper is available already. The paper, if you go to heritage.org, is available. Spread it far and wide, as well as the video of our discussion. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.